welcome back to another episode of APIs You Won't Hate, episode 16. Uh, we have a great little set of topics for y'all today, talking about URLs, naming things, always the hardest thing for a developer to do, and also async operations in REST APIs. Uh, but first, I'm joined by Phil and Mike. Guys, how are we doing this week? Hey, not too bad. Good. Yeah, I'm hanging in, holding up down, down here in the south. Same, pretty much. Like, we, we're like, I think we're... Yeah. Are we on like the same uh, latitude just, line? I don't know. We're we're pretty close. There's just a mountain separating us as far as I'm concerned, Matt. Well, so it's funny you mentioned that because I watched, I don't, I don't know if you guys kept up with the uh, Tour de France last July, but there was uh, one of the riders did a completely unsupported, his own tour, uh, riding the transfers and everything. He was all up in the Pyrenees and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and we were watching the, the video highlight last night and just like the mountains, just so gorgeous. And so it's funny because like he was riding up and down them, back up and down them, and I'm like, maybe I could ride a mountain one time to uh, ride <laughs> over to see you. But anyways, um, let's jump right into it. Naming things, naming URLs. Um, there's a lot of, I don't want to say controversy, but there's a lot of conversation around how, what is best practice for naming your urls and i mean we can dive as deep as you want to like things like do you, do you add the slash api and then whatever your url is going to be do you do api dot post url name slash continue the path um what what is your guys's preference on that kind of thing yeah i think i want to add a little more context to this discussion too because this is something that we've got asked in a bunch of different flavors sort of over the past few months uh, URL patterns and how you format a URL is definitely a part of the picture. And I think there's also like the um, maybe harder to grok grammatical strategy for putting together uh, API requests. Like where do you put the verbs in regards to the nouns and is it past tense or present tense? Do you use plurals when and where? Like how, how do you literally structure the thing uh, to make it so that it's consistent and understandable? Um, a good example of that would be for something like, uh, I, I think the, the example I always turn to is cars. But if, if I have an API that's just an endpoint that has a get, a post, a delete, and an update for cars, uh, am I getting car? Am I getting cars? Does that do two different things? Get slash car, get slash cars. Uh, what if I want to get one car? Do I do get slash cars slash one? Do I do get car one, right? How do we how do we discuss those or how, how, what's the strategy for setting those things up? Uh, and then what about situations where it's maybe a little bit more ambiguous, uh, like where grammar doesn't uh, sort of serve us well here? Um, let's say Phil and I were setting up a dictionary of uh, colors for uh, users to go grab for a theming tool or something like that. Uh, you open up a whole other mess of problems when Phil wants to spell color with a U in it, and I want to spell color without <laughs> a U in it. How do we do that, and how do we make that consistent for um, our, our developers, front-end, back-end, and otherwise, to understand each other and, and talk to each other? We should do it the um, right way, I think, obviously. Yeah, your, obviously. Not, not your way. We do it the right way. <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate that, Phil, but I feel like if we removed one byte from every request, that's like a pretty serious amount of electrons saved <laughs> yeah, over the years. That's true. The emissions alone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting problem, right? Like there, there's a lot that goes into that. And I think that um, the grammar side of it is one that intrigues me as, as maybe someone who's uh, spent time trying to figure out how best to communicate with other people. Um, and the API naming convention side of it is definitely important too. And the, the way the two things marry is really interesting uh, because there's a usability bent to that, like making sure that 
the people who are approaching your API can understand the the notion of the thing just by looking at the structure of the endpoints that you've set up. Um, but with that being said, like starting from scratch, uh, I think the, the URL conventions are um, pretty well defined, except for sometimes you have API and then API slash version. Sometimes you don't. Some people use different versioning strategies and all those other things. So um, yeah, maybe maybe this is where I punt to Phil and say like, where what's your very basic uh, design strategy if you're starting fresh in uh, October of 2021? What does that look like for you? Yeah, um, there's no answer to this. This isn't about that isn't about four hours long, but um, <laughs> yeah, it it depends is probably a good answer. Like people, th- there's a lot of different conventions from a lot of different communities, and whether you know you'll see you'll see a lot of difference between what the gRPC people are doing from REST from GraphQL, and then even within those, you see a lot of differences too. Um, and and it it kind of depends what type of API you're building, even if it's kind of REST-ish. Um, you still see people writing URLs like, you know, get users when when that's really kind of a, a layover from the RPC days when people would create a full method name instead of creating a resource that you manipulate in various ways. So, um, yeah, the if you're going for a REST API, then you want to try and get things like get or delete kind of out of the URL because you are defining resources that are then modified through verbs and so people falsely kind of think that the verbs are, are purely crud, you know, get post, post is create, put is update, delete is delete, but it's not really as simple as that. Um, there's a whole bunch of different meanings for a whole bunch of different things in there, but you should be able to kind of name your resources and then modify them through certain ways. And then if you're getting to a, a, a problem where you can't find a method that is the appropriate action for your resource, you might be trying to overload the meaning of that resource. So you'll have people say things like, why isn't there a pay method for an invoice? And like, well, you, that, there's probably too much happening on that invoice then. Like you probably want to make, you know, um, payments as a sub resource of invoices or a standalone resource that can be connected to um, an invoice. So then you are, you know, creating a payment attempt, um, things like that. So, I think people kind of creating oversized resources is one of the biggest problems with literally anything in APIs, um, but it, it really can make naming things hard as well when you're trying to do that. And that's why you get people trying to make like a method called pay invoice because it, it clearly says the specific thing that they want, but it's quite hard to do that in a, in a rusty way. Um, and then there's there's the one school of thought which is the the hardcore hypermedia fans which basically say none of this should matter like it shouldn't matter whether it's slash cars slash id or car id it shouldn't matter if it's what naming conventions you have you should you should be able to just replace everything with like an md5 checksum and have completely opaque urls because if you're browsing in through the route and, and following um, relationship uh, re- uh relationship types right and and following to different resources that way you programmatically shouldn't care what the URL is. And that is valid um, and it's not wrong, um, but it ignores the fact that no matter how fantastic of a Hatios powered um, hypermedia API you build, there's a lot of people that would just fully ignore that and hit it by looking at the URL and they will hard code the URLs in and they will want to know what those URLs are. And if you have MD5 checksum to everything to be unique transactional one-off URLs, they're going to get very confused and sad. So, um, I, I try and be as consistent as possible and just do like 
resources are always plural, even when you're getting one of them, because then you can easily it's slash cars. And if you want to filter, then you have like your filter parameters. Um, and if you want to get one of them, it's like going inside a folder, right? So it's slash cars slash ID of car. Um, and I try and limit how many sub resources I have. Cause when you have slash cars slash one, two, three slash something else slash something else slash something else, um, those hierarchies and relationships can change. And so if you've baked in the URL and the, hi the hierarchies change, you've ruined everything. Um, and yeah, just try and be consistent. And people argue to death over whether you should use like underscores or camel case. And a lot of the time that's because those people are used to using those things in their language. So people who write Java and PHP and JavaScript and Ruby will all have different opinions because they're used to working in certain ways. Um, so inside JSON, you will see people from one community use camel case and another community use underscores because they don't want to have to write some logic that just says like, flip it from underscores to camel case. That seems annoying. But that logic can make for really good serializers and deserializers where you actually put effort into thinking about what you're sending out over the pipe and what you're returning instead of just farting everything out over the wire. So, um, yeah, it, it, I don't know. <laughs> it's a mess. Everyone does whatever they want. <laughs> yeah, well, that's quite a bit to distill there. But I, I think the overarching theme is um, maybe the most important thing is picking one thing and being consistent with it across your entire strategy. Right. Yeah. Like if, if some of my endpoints were underscore separated and some were camel case and some were kebab case and all the other things like that is a, a woefully unusable system that you've created. Uh, and if you have the space to be more thoughtful and spit things out in formats that are understandable or preferred by your various uh, user bases, I think that's an interesting thing. I saw a tweet earlier this week that was someone asking for the preferred strategy for parsing JSON data using .NET apps. Uh, and, and it that so I work mostly in JavaScript, uh, generally speaking, and that is such a trivial problem in JavaScript that to see that there's like three separate approaches to parsing JSON uh, data coming into a .NET app was kind of befuddling to me. Uh, <laughs> but when you start to understand that those problems exist for people who are consuming your stuff, like maybe it makes sense to also send them YAML data that's easier to consume or XML or whatever their, their uh, preferred flavor of uh, data fetching is. Um, and you can be a little more thoughtful if you've made some some good um, decipherable and consistent rules around the way that you set everything else up. That that is uh, the first step sort towards being successful. Uh, and and much like many of the things we talk about on here, I think the important thing too is not like making everything a hill you're going to die on, right? You may <laughs> consult with a dozen companies that have different APIs strategies for their, yeah. the way they name things or set things up. And as the consultant, you need to be a little flexible with what they do because it has to work with their existing strategy in the same way that an end user needs to be flexible with the way they consume things. Like some, some um, things will be designed more thoughtfully than others. And uh, if you're suddenly going to turn it into a civil war every time you see a hyphen in a URL, uh, <laughs> you're, you're setting yourself up for a pretty bad time. Yeah, I think it's one of the hardest, one of the tricky things that people have to navigate when they start doing things like API design reviews is that if an API style guide hasn't already been defined, then you are going to have bike shedding on every pull request, right? And that is not a situation anyone wants to be in because um, the person who is striving for consistency is just going to look like the, the baddie because um, they're jumping on, you know, oh, that shouldn't be this. So yeah we, we've talked about it before like trying to automate style guides and i think that takes a lot of the um the kind of hatred or anger or focus away from the, the person saying it because you can collectively define a style guide um 
and if you define that as a giant word doc somewhere or a part of a website that people don't know about people are going to ignore it but if you use something like spectral um which integrates with like circle ci and and github actions and your editor like vs code whatever if you, you build that automated um style guide then you can say hey url should be kebab case and then it's not why is frank telling me that url should be kebab case it's like this random robot that is being baked into our ci process has told me this so it must be fairly authoritative um <laughs> and uh, all hail the robot overlords but yeah i think that stuff can can help a bit there by writing more style guides and it, it's a shame that people still aren't doing it all that much like I know that writing automated style guides can be tricky because it's, you know, using Spectral, which is the most powerful, I don't know of that many tools that let you write your own. They just kind of enforce existing style guides, but writing them in Spectral can be tricky because you've got to like learn a new YAML DSL and figure out how that works and like invoke core functions or make your own custom functions. Um, but we are, you know, at Stoplight, we are starting to see more people doing it, but I wish more people did it because um, it kind of solves that problem of, how do we how do we maintain all these style guides? How do we decide whether it should be camel case or not? How do we decide whether you know which um, which format to use? How do we how do we enforce that people use JSON API instead of HAL or Siren or whatever collections uh, JSON? Um, and and yeah, it can do it without making a specific person spend all their time going stop using underscores because that's not a job that anyone wants. <laughs> Yeah, I, I come back to, I think, a quote that um, one of my mentors kind of blessed me with years and years ago, which is a slightly apocryphal quote that is uh, attributed to Frank Lloyd Wright. But it's essentially that the two most important tools for an architect are an eraser in the drafting room and a sledgehammer on the job site. And it's sort of like if, if you spend some time up front designing that style guide and, and putting it into a place of sort of honor and respect within your, your build system uh, and setting up the tooling around it, then, uh, you know, the, the bike shedding and argument on every pull request will go away and your need to whip out a, a wrecking ball every time you build a, a new endpoint and start everything else from scratch and get into all kinds of versioning messes goes away too. Um, even if you're not fully happy with the decisions you make at the beginning, it's often beneficial to just remove remain consistent for as long as possible uh, with the choices that you've made to uh, go and deliver something that follows a set of rules that you've got. Well, that's also like, uh, this is kind of like a good pitch for like design first API processes too, because before you even write a line of code and then get into a, a pull request argument with a bot about underscores or um, all that kind of stuff, like if you can sit around with all the stakeholders, all the people involved with your API, both on the... Um, building side and the consumption side, you can agree to those types of rules up front and hash it out that way. So that way then it's a lot smoother of a process um, going down the road too. So it's, it's a paradigm shift and it's a hard paradigm shift if you're not used to it, but totally has wide ranging, um, I don't want to say consequences, but um, wide ranging reach into benefits, benefits yeah, of of yeah. a, a better API process, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's one of the most one of the most valuable parts of, of the design first, like the entire point of design first essentially is that you're kind of coming up with this blueprint for what the API will be. Um, you know, whether you call it a contract, some people call it blueprint because API blueprint was a, a type of language. Some people call it schema. They're all kind of the same thing uh, where you just literally write down what the URLs and pay, you know, um, methods and, uh, and, and properties and you just write down what the API is going to do and if you do that 
by hand with YAML, it sucks. Um, so a lot of people just kind of end up writing a whole bunch of code and then annotating it afterwards. And if you do that, like if you make your code first and then find some way to produce that blueprint, it's like you just built a random house, however you thought would be a good idea, and then showed it to an showed the blueprint to an architect afterwards. Um, <laughs> and then he's just like, hey, this thing's shitty. That's going to fall over. Um, and then you've got to go and rebuild everything. Um, whereas, yeah, if you can kind of agree on the, the, the blueprint and, and the contract and all that stuff uh, beforehand, then you just build to that contract. And so when you look at something like having a custom style guide, it's much better to know that you can use this word or you can't use this security type or you can't. Um, you should use this uh, data format. You should use JSON API instead of how. Much better to know all that really early on, huh? Instead of building the whole damn thing, putting it up to production and someone going, oh, no, no, that's not how we do it here. Um, and yeah, sure, someone could someone could catch it in the prototype phase or if you have enough humans running around reviewing things, then they might tell you that or people might ask in planning, but there's going to be much smaller things that aren't necessarily noticed. Um all the time like something like json api might be quite obvious but yeah um there's a lot of little things and just naming convention stuff and you're using this word that we've already used over there sort of stuff that, that doesn't kind of get noticed so uh yeah design first it's the way to go man i think it brings it back to like to kind of bring it back to like the urls which is the plural versus the singular versus how to describe your relationships too i mean personally like i think i read it in the first iteration of APIs you won't hate where it's like every like I treat everything as plural. And then when I, let's say I have uh bikes slash bikes, and then I want to get the first bike, it's slash bike slash one. And then if I want to know, uh, let's say components, it'd be like slash bikes slash one components to really map out because it also kind of, it, it it's almost like a, a map to your entire API. And it's, when it's the first introduction people really have, to interact with your APIs is your URI structure. And so I've always, always been on the thought of keep it as clean and uh, descriptive as possible and make it, make it make sense. That way it's almost like you don't have to totally read the docs. Like you can kind of, you, it, it logically follows yep. down. And so like, if you have users and then you want to get user uh, 1000, the next logical step is probably slash profile to get all their address pay, you know, payment information, all that kind of thing. So that's, that's really where I kind of fall on the, the endpoints construction debate. Yeah, for sure. And comically the GRPC GraphQL and rest communities all say that thanks to the very clever, unique ways that they do something, you shouldn't need documentation for it. <laughs> like they all say that unlike this other, these other ones who definitely need documentation for our way means you don't need documentation. Oh, and it's never quite true. Um, but in theory, yeah, like the, the better designed an API, the less chance someone will need to go and look at documentation, but you're always going to end up needing it for people who need more information because things aren't perfect and not everyone's super duper experienced in everything to do with apis yeah and like just to be clear like documentation is important and you should totally have it like don't just like yeet your api to production and just kind of walk away thinking that your api is built perfectly like you need documentation so but if you do it if you build it in a very thoughtful intentional way you can make it so your users understand the documentation a lot easier as well as your api and uh can kind of lessen the burden on your consumers down the road 
So I think right now we're going to take a quick break um, and we'll be right back. Hey everyone, we here at APIs You Won't Hate are trying to find some awesome API-centric products and companies to partner with to help grow the show. If this sounds like a match made in heaven, find Mike or myself in the APIs You Won't Hate Slack and we will get you the details. And we're back. We still have Phil and Mike here with me and we're going to we're going to change topics for a little bit. We're going to talk about async operations with REST APIs, things like long callbacks, short callbacks, pub sub polling. Um, I think Phil, correct me if I'm wrong, this kind of ties into what Lorna Jane Mitchell did with uh, OpenAPI 3.1, getting the, the webhooks object into the specification as well. Um, and when that yeah. happened, there was a almost like a sense of relief amongst the community. It felt like, like it, it was a huge achievement um, that made it into the specification. You know, Lorna did a really great job pushing on it and getting it in there. Um, but so if you're not totally familiar with it, um, can you give us a little bit of a quick kind of rundown of what all is happening with that object and also with other async operations? Yeah. yeah maybe maybe start with why we would use async too. Like what are some scenarios the end user of your API would use an async call for? Sure. I think we've done a lot of talking on the blog and probably on the podcast about when it's good to use GRPC or GraphQL or REST or whatever, but a conversation that's often left out is when do you want like a more real-time API instead of request response? When When is request response not really appropriate? Um, and so in these days, there are certain groups of people that run around saying that you should use, you, you shouldn't really use, you know, REST or HTTP-based stuff for anything, and everything should be completely event-streamed and, and just events everywhere, and everything's events, and everyone should subscribe to everything. And we've seen those trends before, like simple APIs like um, like Twitter kind of said, if you want to find out how many followers you've got, there's no followers count anymore. You have to subscribe to every single event, pick up all of the you know, person followed, uh, someone followed you, someone unfollowed you, pick up all of those and maintain your own counts. And that's obviously stupid. That's into, uh, in, that's resource intensive. It's hard. If you miss a few um, events, you've got the wrong number. Like it, it just is dumb. So there's always going to be a combination of lots of things happening and lots of events happening at all different times. Like you make a payment and then like the confirmation comes in all these things that kind of happen later there's all these events flinging around inside your system and then you probably want like a request response api to as an aggregate interface for all of that so you can you can read those things and then you know send another one in and that creates other events so um there's always gonna be a mixture of real time and and kind of request response apis but so we're, a lot of us are very familiar and kind of used to just doing it the request response way and when, when we realize we might need some events, we think we have to throw everything out and, and start with something else. And um, there's a lot of ways you can add asynchronous behavior into a REST API or any other type of HTTP API um, that don't really require all that much change. Uh, so imagine you're doing a post and that post has to do something fairly slow. You can either sit there for 30 seconds waiting for that thing to happen on some other server or whatever, um, and then send the response, or you can send an immediate response saying, "Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm going to do it. I'm get I'm I'm doing it later." Um, and then you can try and find a way to contact the client when it's done. 
and there's a bunch of different ways of doing that. Um, you mentioned a few, Matt. Uh, the, the most popular ones are polling. There's like long polling and short polling. Um, there's uh, callbacks and webhooks and and websockets and PubSub. There's a bunch of different things, but those are kind of the main ones. And yeah, in OpenAPI specifically, if you were trying to describe an event that happened asynchronously later, they'd use, they only had support for callbacks. And now, thankfully, they've got webhooks too. And the main difference is that if you like send a post and you get your response with a callback, you might get another response later. So you might get an, an event coming to you from another server, just posting some information to you saying like, hey, that payment totally worked out. Things are on their way. And that's really cool. Um, callbacks are usually done kind of in response to you just making a request. So you make a request, get a response, then you get another event hitting an endpoint of yours. Um, and then webhooks are how that's often implemented. But webhooks are a bit more generic. And you might kind of say, I would like to sign up to this API and I would like it to send any events that it thinks might be relevant to me to this endpoint. And you'll have all sorts of different event types. And it could be, yeah, payment um, accepted, this payment was rejected, uh, user has changed their email address. It could be all sorts of things, any sort of event you could imagine. And they'll all get kind of fired into your API. Um, and yeah, then you can kind of update your information in your website based on the changes of another website. Um, and it, that all works within a, a kind of REST API world. You don't have to rewrite everything in Kafka or whatever. You can just kind of send those updates through the system like that. Um, and and it, using those sort of kind of web requests coming back in uh, approach with callbacks and, and webhooks, it beats you having to do like lazy polling, which is where you just sit there and go, hey, what's the latest on this? Hey, what's the latest on this? Hey, what's the latest on this? It's the ultimate like child in a car of like, are we nearly there yet? Are we nearly there yet? No, I'll tell you when we're there. Shut up. Um, <laughs> so yeah, polling is not only bad for everyone. Like it, it adds undue strain to the servers. It, it adds undue CO2 emissions to the servers. It adds undue cost because you're doing traffic that you don't need to do. Um, so you can just basically say like, tell me when you're done with that. And it will send you a post request being like, yo, I'm done with that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think the the most common example I can think of of like using webhooks. So uh, I built software to uh, for like an apartment management company, and so you know, like not everyone wants to put their rent on a credit card or um, you know fees for a credit card really kind of um, go up and up and up the more you you put on a credit card. And so they also have ACH payments or um, uh, from like bank accounts. And so with that, you know, there's generally, at least here in America, there's a, a 48 hour, um, process from like when I submit the payment, my bank gets it, they transfer the money, has to do all the financial regulation type things. And then, uh, finally the company gets the money and then they send all the alerts back. That's like a perfect example of like how a webhook can be used where it's like, I submit the payment and then I can walk away and then the server can just be waiting for, a webhook from the payment processor saying we got the payment payments been moved around all that kind of stuff um and then yeah i mean with long polling you know like just sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting it's a waste of resources when with a webhook it can be sitting and waiting but it can also be doing other things as well it doesn't need to constantly be asking you can it's it's waiting for whatever we want to listen for so 
definitely something to take advantage there if you're not totally using it because you don't want to be constantly asking for things you can be waiting to get that thing back and then take action on it when the when you get it whenever it is two days three days four days five days down the road something like that yeah that's that's a good way to go if it's going to be a really long time as well um things like web sockets are a little different and those are quite cool basically a web socket is you you kind of make a connection um to a server on a certain port and uh, you can basically have events kind of pushed into it and you can kind of subscribe to those events. It's um, very similar to something like RabbitMQ or whatever, but good for working with people you don't necessarily know. Um, and you can just kind of, it, maybe you're making a request and then like 10 things might happen and, and something might happen on your side and something might happen on their side and you just you can all push your updates and, and get your updates back out of this WebSocket. Um, it means you can kind of find out all the things that are going on in, re in response to the thing you just did. Um, and doing that can be, yeah, really handy. And well, polling live asynchronous polling of information happens on some level, right? Whether it's your, uh, your inbox or your Instagram or Twitter or, uh, your bank account, all those things have like lots of use cases where these strategies are important and, uh, it, it can be brutally inefficient on your phone, on your computer, on the, the web itself. If you're using the, uh, sort of older strategies of continuous polling and asking, are we there yet every couple of minutes? Yeah. Uh, and, and these newer implementations are not only friendlier for like device life and things like people uh, operating over slow mobile connections and things like that, but they also sort of just end up being better metaphors for developers who want to go and pull information uh, from, from some endpoint that they expect to get a somewhat uh, regular real-time update from. Uh, the, the, the developer experience result of this process is that you're not writing these crazy loops that are indefinite that you have to monitor and hope that you get the right thing and then don't accidentally squash it by your next uh, send off of that request and all these other <laughs> things. It, it ends up being much friendlier to deal with a webhook or a web socket or, yeah. uh, you know, some of these, these uh, data pipelines that we have available now. For sure. There's, there are times where actually polling can be pretty handy. Um, the, for instance, webhooks, I need to talk to a URL. So if you're trying to update a iOS app, like a mobile app or a, a, you know, a single page application, right? You've got just some Ember app sitting about. Webhook can't tell you nothing. It would need to talk to some sort of server that then talks to you. And that can be an issue if there is no server involved, right? If you're just making a front end app, you're like, oh, how do I actually ingest those, those webhooks? Um, so yeah then it's a case of we well, probably want WebSockets for that, but maybe that API hasn't implemented that. So you kind of are stuck with with polling there. Um, and, and in that example, that's just kind of being stuck with something that's not great. But if you're in an environment where, I mean, if you're trying to do stuff out in super rural areas, you've got people wandering about in the middle of nowhere, um, they might not be able to maintain a consistent connection for a very long time. So that might actually be, you know, like, wandering around Africa or some of the fields I'm in <laughs> with, with my Vodafone connection, which is the worst in the world. Um, those sort of things, like having something poll occasionally wouldn't actually be that bad, especially if there was like a fastly CDN connection in the way. If it's making a get request and it's going to the nearest edge server um, and people are kind of preparing that edge if you're kind of cache warming and, and using things like surrogate keys this is a whole other topic I won't get too much into but you can kind of you know invalidate things when they change and push them out to the edge server so that when i do occasionally poll it'll be like oh that thing changed cool like 
polling can be useful for certain applications like that, where you know that they can't maintain a really good connection. But if someone's like on a desktop application and you're not expecting them to be in a field or up a mountain, you, you probably want to go with something more up to date, like WebSockets or Webhooks. <laughs> yeah, I think the only thing I was upset about with your explanation there, Phil, is that we'll never get a Vodafone sponsorship now. Uh, oh, no. But, you know, I think we're all going to have to live with that in the end. Well, the shade I've been giving them on Twitter for the longest time is going to have secured that lack of funding either way. <laughs> their internet yeah, you... does not work and you cannot leave their contract. They will not let you uh, leave. If you, you have to basically phone them up and say, hi, my phone doesn't work right now. And that's the only way to get out of the contract. But you can't because your phone doesn't work right now. Um, and I'm really mad with them. They're like, oh, you can leave for £700. I'm like, you, no. <laughs> And that wraps up our segment. It's a podcast within our podcast called Sim Cards You Won't Hate uh, about about mobile carriers who provide yeah. subpar experiences. Or just don't um, provide experiences. Phil, I, d I did want to get back to one kind of interesting point that you just made there, that some of the onus is on the developer here to make a smart decision about the best um, polling data strategy for uh, the use case you're looking at. Uh, once upon a time when I was doing um, application consulting, uh, I designed software for um, a petrochemical company that was basically managing giant pools of like melted dinosaur bones uh, in uh, the, the scary part of Houston that's just all flames shooting out into the air and all this other stuff. And uh, just despite, I'm sure, Phil's uh, soul leaving his body right now, one of the interesting <laughs> things about that uh, user scenario was that the the people that were out there using these tools had like a tablet that was strapped to their thigh because they were climbing up and down ladders all day and accessing uh, data and, and doing basically like routine safety and chemical checks on these these big vats of noxious, terrifying stuff. And because of the environment they were in, they weren't able to connect to data all the time. So it was like a very early offline scenario. This was oh, I guess close to 10 years ago now. Uh, so things like um, service workers and all that were maybe very, very new, if at all, present at the time. And um, that that even rolled back as far as like their data polling scenario was they would turn on the, the tablet and hit like, okay, I'm ready to connect to the internet now. Uh, because otherwise they were in a super hot environment where adding additional um, tax on their battery was just like draining it day to day. So we had to be really, really smart. And, and even in that case, take into account like the literal physical temperature of the thing we were working on. Um, but that's all to say that like, this we span the gamut of you know some uh, nerd planting trees in the foothills outside of Bath to uh, people in India with with cell phones that have these uh, really um, sophisticated um, connection scenarios and uh, you know someone sitting at their desk in Tennessee with a fiber optic connection and you need to be able to plan for some reasonable eighty twenty scenario of the people who are. Um, uh, going to be using your thing. And, and uh, that is on you as the developer, as the, the team building this to make some smart decisions there too, just as much as it is to understand the potential options out there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think a, a lot of people when they're trying to plan an API jump straight to uh, what resources are going to be involved. Like they'll pick their you know paradigm based on whatever their favorite one is. And then they'll just start naming resources and naming properties and and, and kind of jump straight into the real-time API. Uh, sorry, jump straight into the request response model because it's just what we're used to. But there are times where you will need to design it differently based on how it's physically going to be used, right? And so in that in environment, it sounds like 
you definitely wouldn't want like a generic API that that is doing everything a request response only sat in the middle somewhere. You'd probably want some sort of um, BFF situation, some sort of application designed for use with that iPad by those people in that environment. Um, and you would want offline syncing. So you'd have things like um, as they're going around adding updates, adding readings of various different temperatures or settings or whatever it is they're doing in the field, they would be adding... Um, you'd be creating events. You'd be creating lots of separate atomic events. Um, like at this at this time, this was the reading of temperature. At this time, this was, you know, this thing was on fire and this thing wasn't, whatever the hell they're doing in that awful world. Um, and then basically when you get a bit of internet, you're sending off your collection of events. And then, you know, it's for the server to figure out like, oh, that came in at that time, that came in at that time, that came in. At, and it makes that aggregate there. Um, and there's probably some other API for some other, you know, people sat in the office where they can just hit get and get the latest aggregate of all that information. And that might load up every time they load that page. Um, and the only asynchronous stuff that would need to be there is, I suppose, um, other events coming in from other systems where maybe there's the people that are checking with their devices and there's other automated services in the uh, checking other things in the background. And maybe there need to be some events being pinged over from that API to your API so that when you do go on the internet, you get other events being filtered back into you as well. But yeah, I think that's kind of a combination of real time updates and offline syncing, which is a, a fun combination to think about. Well, I think it also, you know, the other, the other thing to think about too, which is hard to think about when, as Mike was saying, you know, living in Tennessee with pretty good internet is um, who else is, you know, like where else could your API even be used in the first place? Like maybe you're going to make an API that's used by people in uh, climbing Mount Everest. You don't know that kind of stuff. So it, to bring it back to kind of what you're saying, Phil, like it, it does take a developer to be a little bit forward thinking on um, where, your API is going to be used. Who's going to, who's going to be using it? How's it going to be used? And each strategy, long callbacks, short callbacks, polling pubs, sub webhooks, they all have a place in the API ecosystem that uh, fits. And it's on the developer to kind of think outside of their little box, their little uh, status quo and kind of think through more possibilities. Yeah. Or just use the newest thing sense. because that is always the best thing. Perfect. That's the dogma we're looking for here. <laughs> yeah, throw out anything okay. old. There it is. Exactly. Zero point one uh, that came out last month by a single developer. You have to live on a bleeding edge. That is that is our hot take. And on that note, I think we can go ahead and leave you with that thought for today. Um, as always, you can find us on Twitter at at APIs you won't hate. You can also find us uh, on apisyouwonthate.com. We have a Slack group for you to hang out in, ask your API questions. If you want to talk to Phil about GraphQL or um, long polling, things like that, you can catch us all around the Slack channel there. Um, and with that, guys, thank you for your time, and we will catch everyone next time. See you soon, Matt. Cheers. Cheers.